Well, um, I've been trying to think about how to frame our study of verse 18 today, uh, just in terms of how it fits in the prologue and what it means for the rest of this gospel. Uh, so, so we'll try to set the context for our study in, in this way, at least in terms of thinking about how this verse fits into John's gospel as a whole, and then we'll think uh, more specifically about the content, obviously, that's here. Um, but, but to begin thinking about this, I'm going to give you this statement, and then I'm going to illustrate what I mean. Uh, but, but, he, but here's the statement, just to have in our minds. Here's, here it is. All this has been leading up to a point from which everything else will unfold. All this has been leading up to a point from which everything else will unfold. Okay, so here, here's the illustration. In, in our experiences, uh, we have those events or situations which are very centrally located for what has been and what will be in our lives to come. For example, this is true when we're in, in a phase of life where we're going through our vocational training. Uh, whether it's in the college classroom or whether we're an apprentice, whatever the situation might be, uh, we start in a program. And in that program, we work very hard, taking in all kinds of information, staying up late at night studying, trying to understand things in a meaningful and practical way, all aiming at one main point, which is program completion, right? Graduation day. But we're looking toward the day that, that we get the degree or the certification or whatever it might be. That day is the point. We're working to graduate, get certified, whatever it is. Completion is the point. However... That graduation or completion point that we've been working so hard toward, what we, what we also know is that while it can feel like the point and the purpose for all we've been doing, and actually a great point of relief in that whole process, we also know that that same graduation day point that, that was the, the aim of all our studying and all our working, that's also the day that marks the opening of a beginning of everything else in our lives that's going to happen as we then go forward professionally or whatever it may be. So, so really the completion day we've been working toward is also the beginning day laying the foundation for all else that we're going to do. Um, so, so, so we have this statement, all we've been doing is leading up to the point from which all will unfold, right? And, and it's helpful to think about that because it's that same kind of relationship that exists between us and re as readers and verse 18 of John's gospel, um, of the prologue here in chapter 1. That there's a sense in which all we've been studying in the first verses of John so far have, have been leading us to this huge verse 18 moment. Right? No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is Himself God and is at the Father's side, He has revealed Him. So far, all we've been studying and working through in verses 1 to 17 has been preparing us for this statement. This is the point. In Christ alone, God is revealed. To have Jesus is to have God. To see Jesus is to see God. However, just like college graduation is the point of completion only to then open up, open up to us the world of the rest of our lives, so verse 18 is the point of John's prologue only to open us to the rest of all he's going to tell us now in the gospel. So, so Jesus is God revealed. Do, do we want to know God? Do, do you want to know what God is like? Do we want to see what God looks like in his compassion and instruction and patience and even anger? Well, now out of verse 18, we're prepared for all that to unfold in the rest of of John's gospel as he gives us this narrative account of who this Jesus is. You want to see God, you want to know what God is like, look to the Son. And it's this Jesus that John will spend the rest of his gospel 
explaining and expounding and revealing to us. And so that's how we can think of chapter 1, verse 18, textually. It, it, it is the point of the prologue, and Jesus God is revealed. And we, and we see how that's the case as we've been studying the prologue. What have we been told? Well, well the Word, who is Jesus, he's, he's, he's eternal, He's the Creator, He's the Sustainer, He's the Life Giver, He's the Eternal Life Giver, right? He, he's the... He's the, he's the greater revelation of God in this way. He's the one who brings us membership in God's family. Through the Son of God, the living God is made known. The prologue makes that clear. That this is, this is the point. Jesus is God revealed. And as the point of the prologue, it now thrusts us out into the world of the rest of his gospel, uh, where, where John is in essence saying, so let me show him to you. Then. Let me show you who this Jesus is. To truly know God, we must look to the person of Christ and that's where verse 18 uh, comes to that point. Jesus is God revealed. God revealed. So that gives us a little bit of a textual framework for what's going on here as we get to verse 18. In a sense, it's a point from which all else is going to flow now. That, that textually locates it for us. Thematically, we understand why John has put it here. Um, but at the same time, we also want to say something just about this whole notion in general, just this idea of God being revealed. It's such a vital reality to spend our time considering that this matters so much because we can find ourselves in a number of different places regarding our understanding of who God is exactly, right? Who is God? What, what is God like? Is there a God? Here I am in my suffering. What is God really like for me as a sufferer? Here I am in my confusion. What is God really like? Is there even a God? How could I be confused about these things that seem so important? What is God like? Who is God for me? How do I even know him? We can have these kinds of questions. In fact, they can be of extreme sorts, like, is there even a God at all? So some, like Richard Dawkins, he would say any notion of knowing God is, is a complete falsity simply because there is no God. Right? In his book, The God Delusion, Dawkins says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. He goes on to say this, jealous and proud of it a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic racist. So Dawkins, what is God like? Well, that's a silly question. He would say God is fiction. And side note, I hate him. A little softer version of a response to the question of knowing God sounds like this from Einstein. He said, I don't try to imagine a personal God. It suffices to stand in awe at the structure of the world insofar as it allows our inadequate senses to appreciate it. Right? So Einstein's saying, I'll appreciate the world and its wonders, but as for a notion of God, I just won't spend time thinking about that. Right? A more spiritual position regarding knowing God is, is found in, in Paul Simon's new album, The Seven Psalms. Have you listened to this? Right? You should listen to this. So it just came out. So let's listen to some of these lyrics. He says this, The Lord is the earth I ride on. The Lord is the, is the face in the atmosphere, the, the path I slip and slide on. The Lord is a virgin forest. The Lord is a forest ranger. The Lord is a meal for the poorest, a welcome door to the stranger. So in a recent interview, Simon made this comment. He says, the Lord is my shepherd might very well in the soul of a master musician become the Lord is a record producer. How can we know God? Well, Paul Simon would say, come up with some metaphors that work more helpfully for you. That's what he's speaking about. So, so, so who is God? Dawkins says God is a piece of fiction I'm personally angry with. Right? Einstein uh, says, you know, God is an entity I won't concern myself with. Paul Simon says that God's a being I prefer to understand through metaphors that work best for me. Right? How about one more? This is George Carlin, 
the late comedian, who was also quite the social commentator, he said this. Religion has actually convinced people there's an invisible man living in the sky. That's God's man. Religion has actually convinced people there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day, and the invisible man has a special list of ten things he does not want you to do. And if you do any of these ten things, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever and ever till the end of time, but he loves you. That's his, that's his explanation of the God he, he thinks that, that, that Christians believe in. So, so who is God and how can we know him? The scholar Richard Bauckham, he writes a little book entitled Who is God? And he introduces the book by saying that while many people in our secular age may pose the question, does God exist or is there a God? He says to even answer that question, we have to start by defining what we mean by the term God. Who or what is this God about which we're wondering? And then he goes on to say that if we're going to start defining what we mean when we use the word God, doesn't that definition, he says, by logical necessity, require that we attend to some level at what is propounded to be God's own revelation of himself? In other words, Bauckham's trying to cut through all the fog and say, if we're going to know something about God, don't we at least have to go to a source that claims to accurately reveal God? And it's this genuine and climactic source of divine revelation that John tells us is found in the person of Jesus. To know God, we must know Jesus, is what John is saying. To see God, we must set our gaze on Jesus. To understand who God is revealed to be, we must attend to the person and work of Christ. And so this morning, uh, that's, what, that's what we're going to spend our time thinking about, just working through how John makes this point for us here in verse 18. In Jesus, we have God revealed. And so what we're going to do for our studies is we're going to divide verse 18 by two statements. Um, the first statement is God has not been seen. And second, I almost made the second one just God has been seen, but, but we will say it a little more specifically, through Jesus, God has been revealed. Okay, so God has not been seen, that's first. And then through Jesus, God has been revealed. And, and just as a disclaimer, um, while we'll, we'll point sort of towards some specific application at the end, we're, we're going to have to get theological-ish in a unique way today simply because of the nature of this content. So uh, we, we have our drink of coffee and we're going to have to, we're going to, have to think, uh, think well about this today because there is no greater subject that we immediately confess is beyond our comprehension than the godness of God himself. So uh, we come to this humbly recognizing we need help, especially as a preacher trying to speak about this. So let's, let's first look at this. God has not been seen, which is, which is exactly what John tells us there in the first part of the verse. Uh, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Right? Actually, the Greek text re really shows John's emphasis on the personhood of God here. God is out in front of the clause in the, in the Greek text here, which is like an exclamation point in Greek. It's emphasized. And so it almost helps us to get a little wooden with the translation here, where literally John, John says, God, no one has seen ever. God, no one has seen it. We're, we're focused on the godness of God right now, John is saying, and nobody has ever seen him. Now, we feel something of the starkness of that statement right away, um, simply because it doesn't seem to quite fit with everything else John has been working toward up to this point. But because John's been speaking about the Word, who is Christ, existing from eternity past, the one through whom all things have been made, who is, who is uh, unovercomable by darkness, and who possesses 
uh, not just initial creation power over all things, but the continuing sustaining power over all creation, that the Word is God, Jesus is God. And then John has just told us the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John's just spent time talking about how we actually witnessed this, he says. We saw this, right? John the Baptist saw this. The Word, who is God, he descended into the realm of our world of darkness, and we what? We beheld his glory. We saw his glory, right? Full of grace and truth that we saw the godness of God in Christ. Then verse 18, no one has ever seen God. And then that just jolts us a little bit because just when we think we're starting to wrap our minds around what's happening here in some tiny kind of way, now John jerks the rug out from under us and we're left scratching our heads again. You know, wait wait a second, John. So, So the word is God became flesh, you witnessed it, but now no one has seen God. Where where are we going with all of this? But we have to give John a little space to set up what he's doing here. Uh, We we know, because we've read the rest of the verse, that Jesus is the revelation of God. He he is God and he has been seen. Um, But to set the stage for the phenomenal climactic reality that this represents... It's as if John stops for a moment to remind us of the reality of God's personhood as he has made himself known. God, no one has seen ever. And, and so let's think this out a bit, because as we would expect, when we're, when we're trying to understand the identity of a being who is, uh, by his very nature, beyond all total comprehension, when we do this, things can get a little tricky. And, and, so, and so we do hit some tension here with what John is telling us, um, that we have God's revelation to guide us. So, so we're going to think this out for a second. No one has ever seen God. There's a sense in which that's a difficult statement to understand. Um, but, but at first it might not seem so bad, especially as we think of passages like we've talked about recently, where God says to Moses in Exodus 33, 20, you remember where Moses asks to see God's glory, and, and, and God responds, no one may see me and live. No one may see me and live. That there is no way for finite humanity to behold the true unobscured personhood of God and not just perish. In fact, this truth is foundational for the prohibition of idols. Deuteronomy 4, Moses says to Israel, Since you saw no form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. Idolatry is prohibited in part because you can't see God. So don't make a form of what you can't see. The Apostle Paul affirms this in the call to worship, which we had this morning from 1 Timothy 6, where he says that God is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see. To him be dominion forever and ever. This is who God is. That in his personhood, God dwells in the invisible condition of eternal brilliance. Uh, and and even, even just in saying that, we hear ourselves outside of our capacity. God dwells in the invisible condition of unapproachable brilliance. We've got invisibility and brilliance, unapproachable light, all, all, all coming together there. It's already beyond what our, what our minds can put together. God dwells in brilliance that is not approachable by humanity. We would, as it were, dissolve in death just in the radiance of his immortal, invisible splendor. John puts that as plainly as can be. No one has ever seen God. You you cannot. You can't. But there's tension. There's tension with that statement if we're reading our Bibles. Because what about 
Right? What about Exodus 24? Where we read about Moses and the priests and the 70 elders of Israel going up. And here's the text. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And they beheld God and ate and drank. Huh? How about Genesis 32? Jacob wrestles with God and he knows there's something unseeable about God. Humans can't see God and be okay. And so Jacob says, when all is said and done, he says, I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. So he names, names that place Peniel, which means the face of God. But wait, John just says no one has ever seen God. So, so maybe these apparent sightings were just reported in an exaggerated way in the Old Testament. Well, that, that doesn't work because how about God's own direct witness on the matter? Listen to what he says about Moses in Numbers chapter 12. Hear my words, the Lord says. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, which is a Hebrew metaphor for face to face. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Now, wait a second. I thought Moses asked to see your glory, and you told him he couldn't see your glory or he would die. Now, in your defense of him, when there's that whole situation there in Numbers in, in, uh, in Numbers chapter 12, now, Lord, you say that he speaks with you face to face, beholding your form. And here's John saying, no one has ever seen the Lord. What about Samson's parents in Judges 13, 22? Remember them? This figure referred to as the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah and his wife. And Manoah says, we shall surely die for we've seen the Lord. Manoah knows the rule. You can't see God and live. Right? But they don't die. Abraham in Genesis 18, he hosts the Lord for a meal before the events of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he still lives. So what do we do with all of this? Well, we have to say what Scripture says. What, what, what has God revealed to us about Himself in His Word? And, and, and as we look at the Scriptures, we see there is a sense in which God is beyond any kind of finite grasp of our vision, spiritual, physical, or otherwise, anything like that. He is invisible. He dwells in unapproachable light. No one has seen God or can see God full stop. The immense glory of just the light around his personhood alone is so great that sometimes the most we can have when we're reading the Bible is to say what he is not. He's just so radiantly great and other. So when the scriptures are describing God, they have to say things like he is immortal. We don't have a big enough word for never ending, always being life. So we just have to say he's not, he can't die. The light he dwells in is what? Unapproachable. Everything is negated because all we can say is what he's ultimately not. We don't have words big enough for him. He is invisible. Right? So, so sometimes the best we can do is just to say what we know he is not. What, what he is is just beyond. And we have to be prepared to confess the reality of the bigness of that. And so, and so Bavink puts it this way. Um, and, and here Bavink's just speaking to this part of it. There's obviously another aspect that we're going to talk about in a moment. But listen to this. He says, Scripture and the church emphatically assert the unsearchable majesty and sovereign highness of God. There is no knowledge of God as he is in himself. We are human and he is the Lord our God. There is no name that fully expresses his being. No definition that captures him. He infinitely transcends our picture of him, our ideas of him, our language concerning him. He is not comparable to any creature. 
all the nations are accounted by him as nothing and less or is less than nothing in vanity. God has no name. He cannot be defined. He cannot be apprehended. He cannot be comprehended. There is some knowledge, but no thorough grasp of God. Which is why when the Lord reveals who he is to Moses, he just says that I am. The, the accommodated language the Lord must use to reveal his identity to us in his personhood is just our to be verb. Right? He is what he is. He will be what he will be. He, he just exists in the totality of perfection, always existing, never needing anything. I am just eternal being, he says to Moses. I am what I am. To think on God's personhood properly means we have to hold that there is something majestically unknowable, unquantifiable about him. He cannot be seen. John's saying to us, just take a moment and meditate on the gravity of this reality. The Lord, the God, he, he, God is totally beyond visibility. He's totally beyond full comprehensibility by us as humanity. No one has seen him, and that is absolutely true. But that's not all this true, because Abraham had a conversation with him. In fact, Abraham even had a little bit of an argument. Jacob wrestled with him. Moses and the priests and the elders shared a meal before the form of the Lord. Samson's parents saw him. So is this a contradiction in the Bible? Did the writers just just forget to collaborate on the, their theology of the seeability of God as they were writing these things down? Of course, we know there's not a contradiction. There's, there's something that actually comes together in a very climactic and unique way regarding this, and it comes together in the person of Jesus Christ. Right? And in fact, a huge clue for this comes later in John's Gospel, in John chapter 12, where John references Isaiah's magnificent vision of God. You remember Isaiah's vision of God? A vision so great that Isaiah, because he knows, he says, woe is me for I am ruined. You can't see God and be okay. Isaiah knows that. Isaiah's vision of the Lord was unique, but he saw. And who did Isaiah see? Well, in John 12, John tells us Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate son. He saw Christ. Isaiah saw his glory and spoke about him, is what John tells us. And that gives us a huge clue to what's going on through all these Old Testament narratives, and it helps set the groundwork for what functions here in, in, in verse 18 in terms of making things clear. Where God has been seen throughout history with his people, even as often as Jesus takes the name Yahweh to himself in John's gospel. Remember the seven I am, which is Yahweh, I will be. Uh, even in the seven sayings that Jesus uses there to identify himself, when God was seen in that way where people could have some level of visible encounter with him and live, the witness of John seems to help fill in the truth that it was a pre-incarnate view of God the Son. We're into the mysteries of the Trinity at this point, but it was a view of the Son of God manifest in a kind of accommodated, apprehensible way, a way which, which Christ would ultimately display in his fullness when he took full human form to himself and was born of a woman. So, so Abraham saw God, and in doing so, he saw the second member of the Trinity. He saw God the Son, right? not God the Father. He's Spirit, not God the Holy Spirit, right? To, to, to see God like Moses or Isaiah did in this formed kind of way is, is, is something that we find pointing forward to the ultimate and climactic reality that Jesus would come in the physical form of humanity, born of a woman, and so on. To see God typically meant, as theologians put it, a pre-incarnate theophany. 
a, a view of what Christ would be. And then, and then not to see God, to be hidden in a rock like Moses was, for example, when the glory passed by, you can't see me and live. There we're into the mysteries of the Trinity and a manifestation of God. The Father, for example, is not visible to Moses, and so he's set in the cleft of the rock while the glory passes by. Right? So, so we, can, we can be careful and use proper language in that, in that God the Son reveals God to us not exhaustively that that would be impossible because we're creatures and we're tiny we will never exhaustively know god there's a bigness of a sense in which he, he's beyond what we could ever visibly capture right but god the son reveals god to us not exhaustively however he does reveal god to us genuinely and personally which is exactly where we get in the next part of this verse this is where this is where john is is heading okay you still with me Good, okay, so here's, here's where John is going. We, we, we start with the reality that God has not been seen, which, which is true in the, in the comprehensive Trinitarian reality of, of the eternal separation of the purity of the Godhead. I mean, if, it's so hard even to put words to it. You just try to find words with the most syllables and use them. Right? This is who God is. Right? So we start with that, but that flows into the second truth here, which is that through Jesus, God has been revealed. The one and only Son who is Himself God and is at the Father's side, He has revealed Him. So, so we have this one and only Son language here again, which we talked about a little bit in an earlier study. Uh, the terminology, it speaks to the uniqueness of Jesus. Remember this, there's a sense in which Paul can say we're all sons of God. Uh, that speaks to the eternal inheritance that comes through Jesus Christ. We're all sons culturally in that sense. The sons receive the inheritance through Christ. We all have the inheritance of eternal life, men, women, boys, and girls, because Jesus has purchased that for us. We're all sons of God in that sense. John has already called us all children of God uh, through what Jesus has granted to us because of his work. So we're sons of God. We're daughters of God. We're, we're, we're his children if we're trusting in Jesus. However, Jesus is the unique son. He's the, unique, he's the son that is unique as the Son of God in a way that's different from us, the one and only, the monogenes is the Greek word there. Which John expounds upon when he says next that the only Son is Himself God. We're, we're children of God. We are not gods. We will not be many gods. Right? Jesus is God. So He is Himself God. And He's at the Father's side. So literally there the text reads, He's in the bosom of the Father, which is a Hebrew language picture that's used to indicate Throughout the Old Testament, the most intimate of all possible relationships, the bosom of the father, or, or to be in the bosom of another, it refers to a husband and a wife in Deuteronomy. It refers to a mother with her children. It refers even to God and Israel. And here Jesus is the one in, in most perfect and intimate relationship with God the Father as God. I mean, Trinitarian mysteries and all its bigness right here. Right? And he, Jesus, has revealed God. John says, Jesus has revealed the Father. So historically, through a theophany, we can call it, like with Abraham and Moses, the Son has revealed God. And now presently, in the most profound, climactic, word-became-flesh way, Jesus reveals God. So very literally, the text says, Jesus had, we have the word revealed there, literally it reads, Jesus has exegeted Him. Right, the Greek word there is, is translated revealed, but it's where we get our term exegesis, which means to explain 
and interpret through the process of narration. That's what exegesis is. You go to seminary, you take a preaching class, they talk to you about exegesis because a part of the preacher's job is to take the text, explain the text, and, 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 and relay the text in a narrative style. That's exegesis. Right? Um, Jesus, God the Son, is the exegesis of God the Father is what John is telling us here. Carson, D.A. Carson puts it like this. Jesus is the narration of God. So we put this all together and John is making it clear to his readers that in the coming of Jesus, we not only have the personal presence of God dwelling with us, but in the coming of Jesus, we have the explicit, physically observable, at least for the people of that generation who witnessed all of this, right? In Jesus, we have the explicit and observable revelation of God himself. What is God like? Jesus is the exposition of God for us. Which is exactly what Jesus himself says in John 14, verse 9. The one who has seen me has seen who? The Father. Now remember, uh, as we think, think about this, where, where all this started and how we used that statement at the beginning of things today where, where all we've been doing is leading to that point from which all the rest will unfold. Remember that? Remember that. So, 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 so why now, with all this in our minds, why study the rest of John's gospel? Well, for the simple reason that I want to know what God is like. This is why we're going to study the rest of John's gospel. Back to Bauckham's comment on the matter where, where, he, where he makes that statement. We can only answer the question, who is God, by attending to who God has revealed himself to be. John tells us that in Jesus Christ, that revelation is climactic. So what is God like? For us, for our friends who we speak, to, uh, speak about uh, God with, we can, we can open our Bible to John's gospel and say, let's explore what God is like together. Let's look at how this has been revealed to us. When we close our eyes and imagine what we think God really must be like on the throne of heaven, ruling over all from his place of preeminence and power, when we wonder what is God really like, we come to Jesus and he shows us. Which is as big a concept as that is. Something so intensely practical for us as we seek to live out our life in this world, recognizing our finite humanity in relationship to the transcendence of the God who we serve. What is God really like? Here I am in the midst of this suffering that I can't quite categorize. I don't understand why it's happening. I don't see a way through it. And I'm not sure there's actually any hope of relief. I wonder what God is like for me in this. Well, in a place like that, let's go to the scriptures and let's see Jesus come to the one who's suffering. And how does he attend to the one who's suffering? He gives us a picture of the fact that he's actually the one powerful enough to relieve that suffering forever. That's what Jesus is going to do for you. That's who God is for you. The one who in Christ has done enough in order to reconcile a fallen, broken creation to himself so that that sickness, that sorrow, that suffering, all of that will not be the final word in your life. This is who God is for you. Life will be restored. When we're lost in sin that seems to tangle us up and leave us beyond the reach of restoration, we can go to the woman at the well and see what God is really like. Jesus is there promising her these fulfilling streams of living water and eternal life for the one who's so parched. If we're in the midst of death and loss, we wonder what is God really like in all of this? Have you faced death in such a way that leaves you wondering, what can God really be like if he's causing me to endure this kind of pain? What is God like when I'm grieving in the context of death? We go into John chapter 11 and we see Jesus angered over death. He's indignant because death has occurred in the context of his friendship with Lazarus. And he's there bringing relief and weeping with his grieving sisters. That's what God is like. He's the one who ultimately is, going to, is defeating death, angry with death. Right? 
and the one who is going to bring relief for our grief. When we're dim-minded and so slow to believe and trust and hold the course, when we feel faithless and we wonder, you know, after all my doubt and all my failings, there must really be no place for me with God. I wonder if you've ever wondered that in the context of your relationship with God. What is God really like? You know, I, I, have, I have stumbled probably about 7,672 times too many at this point. And it just may be that because of all that stumbling, God will not have me anymore. I wonder what he's like toward me, the great stumbler. And we can come to a passage like Jesus interacting with Peter, the great denier at Jesus' most needy time. Peter denies the Lord three times. The perfect number, three. Peter denies the Lord perfectly. Way to go, Peter. Perfect denial. Perfect rejection. Okay. And what do we have Jesus doing? What is God like? Well, he restores Peter as the rock of the early church. That's what God is like. Restores the failing one. And so what is God really like? Well, he dwells in unapproachable light. I mean, he is more magnificent, more brilliantly ordained by, by angels' praises in the festal gathering around his heavenly throne of power and dominion than we could ever remotely comprehend. He is beyond our comprehension, so far above, so much more than we could ever fathom. And he is the God of the bloody cross who came and died to pay the just price for sinners like us so that in our finite fallen humanity, we would be restored to live in the glory of his presence forever. I will behold your face, the psalmist says. That's what God is like. And John is saying to us, come along with me now and I'll show you it's true. We're ready to begin our journey through this gospel record where we see this Christ is the very exegetical narration of God himself. Here's what God is like. And so, and so uh, I, I have this hymn here for you that I'll read to you. I think I quoted one verse the other week. I'm going to give you a couple more verses. We'll close with this. But this is from Josiah Condor. And li listen to, it's old language, but that's okay. Listen to how he puts this together. Thou art the everlasting word, the Father's only Son, God, manifestly seen and heard, and heaven's beloved one. Worthy, O Lamb of God, art thou that every knee to thee should bow. Verse 2. In thee, Jesus, most perfectly express the Father's glory shine. Of the full deity possessed, eternally divine. Worthy, O Lamb of God, art thou that every knee to thee should bow. But the high mysteries of thy name and angels grasp transcend. The Father's only glorious claim the Son can comprehend. Worthy, O Lamb of God, art thou that every knee to thee should bow. And so we have this amazing mystery that comes together in the personal revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grandeur of who God is in heaven, unapproachable, unseeable, beyond our comprehension, is now made visible, made revealed to us in the person of God the Son come incarnate Jesus Christ. What is God like? Look at John chapter 3 and Jesus will show you. What is, John, what, is, what is God like? Look at John chapter 4. Jesus will show you. What is God like? Look at John chapter 5. Jesus will show you. What is God like for us? He is the one who is revealed here in the person of Jesus Christ so that we can know him, so that we can trust him, so that we can be restored forever to him because he's the one who comes and takes our punishment in our place, giving us life forever. 
And so we're thankful for John's truth here simply because it orients us with what we need so badly. There is nothing we need more than to know the one who made us and to know the one who saves us. All life flows from that knowledge. And that's what John is giving us here in this truth. Let's pray together. So, Father, we ask that we would that we would know you more and that we would know you by knowing the Lord Jesus. Uh, we see, uh, Lord, why the scriptures point to Christ constantly. Uh, we see why the spirit of God uh, serves as as the one who illuminates Jesus to us from the pages of the scripture. We must know him, Lord, because in knowing him, uh, we know the one who made us, who loved us, who saves us who ultimately reconciles us to life forever. We thank you for your plan of salvation. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your purchase of our salvation. We thank you, Spirit of God, for the application of that salvation to our hearts, opening our eyes to see. And we pray that in the great mystery of your being, uh, we would be found uh, knowing you and pursuing you through the revelation and the, and the gracious condescension you have given in the, in the coming of the Lord Jesus. We trust you and we love you. and We long to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.